Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now This is Her Majesty, the Queen Mother, speaking to you, as usual, from beyond the beyond, the after, the other side, yes, where it's all black and white, as we learned in that fun movie with that silly old man, oh, David Niven, I see him occasionally at parties, but that's neither here nor there, no, I'm here yet again to reintroduce you to For Screen and Country as it abandons yet again its silly side projects and returns once again to the list ordained by God himself of Britain's finest films. I'm quite apologetic. This was a mixer in heaven tonight and I'm quite over my heels. I had quite a few martinis. Mm. You know how I love martinis. And did you know they have cigarettes in heaven? Oh, they have cigarettes in heaven. Who'd have thunk it? And you don't stink. You don't stink when you leave a party and smoking cigarettes in heaven. Oh, what a time. But that's neither here nor there. It's my honor and duty to introduce my good friends, Brendan and Jason. And now, for screen and country. God bless you, and God bless Britain, and no one else. Oh, okay. I wasn't she, sure she when dissolved. to... She did. She fucking dissolved, Brendan. <laughs> in front of my face, they don't usually dissolve. They usually just like they they go through the wall or something. She fucking dissolved. Does that mean she's super dead? I don't know. Oh shit! Does that mean she's like one of those like minions of James Woods' Hades from the film Hercules? Oh, wait, no. She was alive though when that movie was made, so it doesn't work. Oh damn it! Wait, I really? I, I'm sorry shit. to bur- I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but we have to be realistic here, Brennan. We have to be. That is the top priority of this show, Jason. Is we That's, all all our bits are rooted in realism. Rooted in realism, grounded. Uh, these are words that are often used to describe us. Grounded, respectable, pragmatic. Uh, yeah. Fellas. Fellas. All those words are accurate. This is a podcast, though, Jason. This is a podcast. It remains one. Yes, and uh, it is called For Screen and Country. And uh, we are talking about, what are we talking about on this podcast, Jason? What well, do we do? What do we do here? Kind of our raison d'etre, if you want to use okay. a, a phrase from the evil people across the water. Wow. Uh, our raison d'etre is to explore via dice the BFI's 1999 list of the top 100 films of all time. Now, of course, the BFI being the British Film Institute. Mm-hmm. Of Britain. And we, we watch them 
we talk of them, we uh, we uh, criticize, we compare, and uh, at the end of the day, we decide whether these movies should be preserved or whether they should be destroyed and kept from the eyes of all <laughs> other viewers. And that's the only two decisions we come to. We have no middle ground, not, yeah. just either extreme. Now, we've been very generous so far. The only movies that we've actually destroyed were The English Patient and the remake of Dr. Zhivago. That's okay, though. Nobody needs to see those ever again. Well, I mean, I think we also, I mean, I think there's a few others. Yeah, but I don't know that they're worth destroying. Warren's after Arabia? Mm, that should be kept as a warning. <laughs> well, well, I would. I mean, we'll put that film on a pike. <laughs> I mean, maybe I have a few more than you, then, because I think I would have destroyed Women in Love and also oh, no, uh, the Killing you, Fields. You, you cannot erase the the grandeur and the eroticism of that wrestling scene. There's that's no, the. But I mean, that's not worth the whole movie. Yes, it is. Yes, it <sighs> is. And, and also that movie gave us the the other one, The Rainbow. Was that the one that was way better? It was better. Which yeah. I think we're in the minority for thinking that, but well, you know, well, what are you gonna do? I mean, that's the thing. There's hot takes all around uh, on this podcast. Oh, somebody, somebody, uh, somebody opened the oven. We get some hot takes and they're ready to go. As always, we're, we're here to be controversial. That's our primary mission. (laughs) Controversy. Welcome to the contrarians podcast. Uh, (laughs) we're watching the hundred best films, uh, on the British film Institute list, but guess what? We're titling it the hundred worst films on the British film Institute list. So, and we're thinking about that shit all over them. That's right. Greatest movie, movie ever made? made? English Patient. Absolutely. 100%. It is enthralling. Enchanting. Magical. <laughs> yeah, so that's what we do. We talk about the British Film Institute, uh, top 100 British Film Institute movies on that list. And uh, Jason, this week we are talking about a film. We are we are actually going back to the list this week because for a while we were, uh, we were doing uh, sequels, remakes for a little bit. Um, to movies that were on the list that we previously covered. But we are going back to the list because we are about to talk about number 36, and it's called The Italian Job. That's right, folks. That lovely melodic music can only mean one thing, which we already said what it was. It's The Italian Job, 1969. This is a movie that is already off the bat uh, uh, saying something, because the opening scene that we were just watching uh, as the music played was of a gentleman driving through the Italian Alps at a very unsafe rate of speed, I would say. I mean, that's 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 foreshadowing (laughs) and dangerous rate of speed. Certainly dangerous rate of speed along very narrow Italian mountain roads that, while absolutely stunning, don't have much in the way of like guardrails. This must have been before guardrails were really a thing, before they were fashionable. So it's more just like stones saying like this is where the road ends. So just be aware of that. Wasn't this the time when um, all the drivers were getting together and burning their guardrails? Yeah, no, they, they, it was a, it was a reaction. It's kind of like the anti-masks protests of the day. It's like you can't take away my freedom to die in a fiery crash down the side of a mountain, and guardrails you know take away that freedom. You know what, though, Jason, it's uh, pretty damn close when you say it that way. <laughs> it's all, it's very close to heart. You understand yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah, but that's, and it's, and he's in a sweet car, and he's just tearing ass and smoking a cigarette and living the goddamn life. But that life, Brendan, is quickly to end. 
mm. because he happens to drive by the magic mafia who have appeared on the side of a mountain mm-hmm. uh, into a tunnel where he crashes, I guess, into a bulldozer. Or is there? I think we just see that he he cra- like something he was waiting in, for him on the other yeah, side. He crashes into something because we see the explosion. And right. then we see the bulldozer push the corpse of the car out of the tunnel uh, where all the magic mafia is waiting. And dumps them over the side, uh, right of the car, dumps the car and presumably the body over the side of the the mountain, down the side of the mountain. And then they throw a wreath because these guys are nothing if not for procedure. Throw a wreath. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then and then I assume teleport away. Uh, <laughs> I got to say, um, by the way, that wreath, the fact that it gets thrown down, it rolls like a tire is a great detail <laughs> that I love. Um, but I got to say that this movie is super 60s in the best way. Oh, yeah, because you absolutely. mentioned the magic mafia like they that feels to me like it's like one of those like um like hippie i don't know i get like a hippie vibe from them just like appearing and like posing and being still and then suddenly like being gone and just like the whole thing just feels immediately very 60s yeah it's it's almost i i, I want to say it's not quite cartoonish but it's in that realm like again that kind of 60s aesthetic it's very colorful right mm-hmm. it's kind of almost surreal in certain ways like this is i mean often jaws is talked about as the first blockbuster but this is definitely something that I, you could call a proto blockbuster like the it's about the action it's about the kind of the fun of it it's it's less about like uh, you know deep characters and and dramatic story yeah and crazy. i no, and I guess I think that's the first thing I was somewhat surprised by is that I, like going into this, I mean, I knew of the Italian job. I've seen sure. the remake uh, years ago. I barely remember it, um, but I've seen the remake. I know of this, this movie, but I didn't really know like anything about the tone. I figured that since the remake was pretty campy, that this one might have been like the more serious one or at least yeah. like a little bit more grounded. Um, but this is just like done as like a fun heist movie. Yeah. Yeah, like, I was it, thinking, like this easily could have been something like a Day of the Jackal type, like like heist movie where it's all very serious and procedural. And but yeah, that's not, but that's kind of not what it is. No. And I also thought like, oh, maybe this, this feels like it could also be like a prestige picture. Right. It feels like it could have that air of like award season going for it. But it's really yeah, not that trotting kind of movie with lots of locations and lots of famous people, although there's really not that many famous people in this movie. There is one super famous person in this movie, though, and we'll talk about him. Well, there is a few. Let's let's get into the cast here, uh, Jason, because we've got uh, leading this movie, of course, is Michael Caine. Michael Caine. As uh, Charlie Croker. Um, of course, I'm guessing a re- remade to perfection by Mark Wahlberg. Oh, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. He embodies uh, Michael Caine from stem to stern. <laughs> we also have uh, Noel Coward as yes. Mr. Bridger. In what um, I believe is one of his final roles, I think he, re- I, I think we, when we were talking about in which we serve, that he may have retired after this role because he was having trouble remembering dialogue. Yeah, he, I mean, yeah, this was pretty close towards the end of his life. Um, we also have making a fairly brief appearance, but we have Benny Hill yes. as Professor Peach. Definitely the most famous person in this movie. And not playing uh, well, the Benny I mean, Hill. other than Michael Caine. And not being the, the Benny Hill character, he's actually acting in a role that's that's weird, but is not the, the character he's most famous for. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of like that whole thing where, like, I, I think the time when I found out that Don Rickles was in uh, a war movie, that submarine movie with the f- Run Silent, Run Deep. Oh, really? He's in that? Yeah, and he plays, huh. like, a not a goofy character, though. And I was like, Crazy. whoa, Don Rickles my, my, was an actor? <laughs> I don't even think I've seen it, but, uh, no, I haven't seen it. But like, he's in Kelly's Heroes as well, I believe, uh, although I think hmm. he's more Don Ricklesy. 
Yeah, and he's in Casino. And of course, Casino, he's very yeah. Don Ricklesy. But he's great. He's great. He's, he's the best Don Rickles there is. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Benny Hill. Um, Benny Hill. Yes. Uh, we also have uh, Raph Valone as Altabani. He's the he's the mafia boss. Ah, uh, yes. We have a Tony Beckley as Camp Freddy, which we'll talk a lot about, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Ros- uh, uh, Rosano Brazzi as Roger Beckerman. That's the gentleman at the beginning who crashes and burns. Yes. Um, guess who was in this movie, Jason? Uh, I'm sure I'll Miss recognize him when you say it. Irene Handel as okay. Miss Peach. Do you remember Who's Irene Handel? Uh, refresh my memory, Brendan. Okay, Jason. Well, Irene Handel was the cellist in Brief Encounter. They, that they made fun of. She oh, was. Oh, oh yes, yes, of course. She was one of the teachers in the Bells of Saint Trinian's. Yeah. Okay. So she's like kind of like an older school marm kind of lady. Yeah. And she was uh, Mrs. Kite, Peter Sellers' uh, wife in um, uh, I'm All Right, Jack. Oh. And who was she in this movie? Uh, in this movie, she plays uh, Miss Peach. She's uh, Professor Peach's uh, right, sister. Sister, yes, she's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, she has like what? I think that's one of my favorite favorite scenes in the movie, which we can listen to that in a little bit as well. Yes, yes. Um, we need to talk about that scene for sure. Yeah, and then uh, just a little, a couple names of note. Uh, Graham Payne is one of the uh, um, one of the um, the toughs that come up to uh, to rough up. Uh, uh, Michael Caine at some point. The name Graham Payne is, is, is I mentioned him because he was a uh, Noel Coward's partner for many years. Hmm, yes, nepotism. And Stanley Kane is Coco, who's also one of the uh, he's one of the men that helps out with the heist. So it's nepotism. Michael Caine's brother. <laughs> it's nepotism all across the board. Why not? Yeah, You're making gave... this fancy movie. This is Grown Ups before Grown Ups. This movie was an excuse for a vacation, apparently, for everybody. Yeah, yeah I mean, based on the quality of this movie, clearly they just made it for a vacation. That's right. Gro- grown Ups is a, a, a remake of The Italian Job. Good Lord, help us. Help us, please. Help us. Um, so, I mean, The Italian Job, it's a heist movie. It's yes. basically, yeah, you know, these guys, um, Michael Caine is just getting out of prison. And they put together a heist, and they're doing it uh, with the uh, financial assistance of this Mr. Bridger character, played by Noel Coward. Which I gotta say, right off the bat, Noel Coward. Now, when we watched In Which We Serve, I was like, I didn't really get an idea of like Noel Coward as Noel Coward. Yes. In this movie, this is who he is. Like this yeah, is he's me, definitely the, playing himself. Yeah, the, this to me is like the image and and the delivery of a Noel Coward. In fact, I would even go as far as to say that he's probably uh, less cartoonish in this movie than he is in real life. <laughs> like, like <laughs> yeah. less, certainly less flamboyantly dressed. Right, but I mean, he has all the like the staples of uh, of like what we know him of, of we know from him, right? With like the stiff yes. upper lip, the he's a little quirky, he's an old codger, yes. he's pretty much put off by anything that challenges the norm. He he's got his trademark house coat. Uh, just everything, everything that you expect is in and this movie. It's interesting to me because he's and, and this is actually kind of a trope in movies, but it's it's like the the crime boss who's in prison, but he's so like got the prison wrapped around his little finger that he's basically living what, what you know, the most possible luxurious life in prison. And it's basically his personal fife. You know? That is my favorite <laughs> detail of this whole movie is that Noel Coward, yeah, Mr. Bridger is in prison the entire time, but he's, yeah, he's basically like, he basically runs the prison. Yes, completely. Um, I mean, 
Should, we, should let's listen. I want to play the scene where Michael Caine goes and 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 breaks back into prison to talk to yes. him in his private <laughs> toilet. What a, what what a bad prison, by the way, that somebody can break into. <laughs> yeah, and it also has um, a little music cue that listeners might find interesting if you've listened to this show a few times. got a job lined up. Get out of here. Uh, it, it's all here. Maps, drawings, plans, everything. You've been put up to this, haven't you? You've been bribed to upset my natural rhythm and ruin my health. No, Mr. Bridger. Mr. Bridger, this is important. Four million dollars. Europe. The comma market. Italy. The Fiat car factory. Croker, this is my toilet. Please, just read it, Mr. Bridger. Get out. You all right, Mr. Bridger? You all right? He's all right. So a couple of things. Um, I love how... By the way, that song, taking our theme song, We'll See You in Court, uh, 1969 film. We, the uh, DeLorean is gassed up. Mr. Fusion <laughs> is full of banana peels, and we are ready. <laughs> we're going to get a very 60s lawyer to represent us. Well, I mean, I don't think we're going to win because I think he's just going to dance. Well, we're going to change history. I'm c- confident of it because the okay. future is what you make it, especially if you have a time machine. <laughs> That's what my mom always told me. Great quote. Uh, Your mom, big Robert Zemeckis fan. Loves him. Yeah. So, yeah, there's that. And uh, I just love the fact that he basically just to just to describe what happened in that scene. There's a little bit of like physical humor there, too, is that he go he's escorted downstairs by two guards. He's very much in control. They hand him his newspapers and his toilet paper roll. He goes into his own private washroom. Michael Caine has somehow made his way in there. They hear a commotion. They think something is up. So he just like kind of pulls the lever to flush the toilet. And as he walks out, that music plays again. This this was also a wonderful moment of like a distillation of, of British comedic sensibility because it's this super dignified man who's well-dressed taking like a very like deliberate journey to take a shit. it's beautiful and and what i like about his another thing about his character too is anytime noel coward is on screen almost every time he's on screen there is some sort of like royal music playing yeah always always so it's like it's rule britannia or the grenadiers theme or or i think god save the queen plays like actually that's my question brendan um i get a real like now he is a crime boss but it the things he said, like he's really into the queen. He loves that music. He seems super conservative. He's talking about like the the financial well-being of the country. Um, 
I'm, I'm wondering if this is if there's a satirical note in here of if he's supposed to be like basically a Tory politician who's in jail and they're well, kind of making fun of that uh, idea. Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll say this much. Um, he was not he, he wanted to one of the things Noel Coward kind of wanted to do was get knighted. And also oh, he was a legit fan of uh, Her Majesty, but he was not at the time knighted. So I guess a lot of people took offense to them writing his character as if he was some sort of uh, like royal or noble. <laughs> there, were, there was a there was a there's a critic um in america that said you know pe- pe- people might think they're kind of making fun of uh of this idea of uh of not being it was a weird comment it was like they're, they're making fun of like this idea of not being knighted or something it's like i i don't i don't think i i think he was maybe looking a bit too much into it but you know whatever i'm sure noel coward would have liked to have been called sir he said he said that he th- he thought the movie exploited uh, Noel Coward in vaguely unpleasant ways. I think Noel Coward. Him. I was gonna say I think Noel Coward knew what he was doing. He seems like he was in pretty good uh, sound mind at that time. <laughs> I, I gotta say I think Noel Coward in this movie is fantastic. Oh, he's great. He's entertaining love, every second he's on screen. Yeah, I absolutely love his character, and I don't even care if he's basically playing a version of himself because he does it perfectly. <laughs> Mm-hmm. That's what, what's what people want to see at that point, like because he's such a bigger he's bigger than any possible character he could play at that point. Like he's so famous, you know. Well, yeah, that's like that's like that he couldn't be anybody else. Well, that's like if you put like Samuel L. Jackson in a movie now, you know, like yeah, it's, if it's, you, you expect him to be Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, Sam is is definitely a talented actor and he can play whatever the hell you need him to play. Oh, and I'm not saying either like Noel Coward isn't, but I'm just saying like he has such a reputation. I, I think Noel Coward's strengths lied in his uh, abilities as a character and as a playwright and less so as an actor. He's fine, but I don't think that that's where his destiny lied. <laughs> See, scorching hot that, takes. Yeah, I'm saying that, what, 40 some odd years after his death? <laughs> come at me, Noel Coward. That's right. Come for me. <laughs> Come for me. Da-na-na-na, da-na-na, come for me and come for Ted Cruz's turkey. <laughs> you know Godzilla? Yeah, I know that song uh, yeah. um, because... I was, I was doing it perfectly. You're right. You were. Uh, and because I watched South Park in the 90s on uh, Global, you know, on the weekends, and that song played a million times because they ran that commercial at least twice every commercial break. <laughs> for the soundtrack specifically, Big Hat Jamiroquai, you remember him? Uh, unfortunately. I know, because you have his entire discography on display at your house. I do. It actually lines the walls. Well, by lines the walls, I should note it. I mean, in one corner of the house, because I don't think he had that many albums. <laughs> a tiny square on the floor. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 in the litter box. <laughs> yes. All right. So Jamiroquai, uh, welcome back to Jamiroquast. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. <laughs> Wait, no, that's not what we're doing. That's not what we're doing. Not this week. Oh, okay. So Michael Caine. Yeah, Michael Caine. Michael Caine. Michael Caine. Michael Caine's having fun in this movie. This isn't any heavy lifting for for Michael Caine. Uh, He's basically just playing a version of himself, I imagine. I mean – Sounds like Michael Caine. You could kind of argue that for basically everyone in this movie, but everyone's just having so much fun. Yeah. And it's like it's infectious. You know what I mean? Like Hmm. Michael Caine shows up on the scene, and he's clearly having a blast. Um, Did you you get a very like – I mean, not in every way, but the way he is with the ladies, I got a very James Bond vibe from him. Well, a little bit, though, to be fair, we don't really see all that much. He gets out of prison (laughs) and he's picked up by uh, a lady that he knows. I I wouldn't say girlfriend necessarily, although she seems to think that. An American lady. 
yeah, American lady, and she's driving what we soon learn is the car that belongs to the ambassador of Pakistan yeah. <laughs> that she had just jacked. Uh, and he take she takes him back to a hotel and brings him into a hotel room, which is full of uh, very scantily clad ladies. And it's implied that they give him a working over. And and can I just um, can I just play a scene that really makes me think of James Bond, though, when it comes Please. to his character? Because um, he also shortly after this, I believe, um, is when we really get the plot going, because he mm. comes in to uh, meet his guy because he's he's ready to do this heist. Uh, but he finds the guy's wife instead. And she informs him, of course, that uh, that this guy died because we saw him die in the opening scene and uh, and and tells him about the heist. And then we kind of go from there. Where's your old man? He's dead in the Alps in a car crash. It wasn't an accident. Oh. Well, there goes the job then. Wait, Mr. Crocker. Yes, uh, Mrs. Beckerman. This is for you. What's this? Some sort of a consolation prize? These are all the plans that my husband didn't have time to complete. He wants you to finish them. Well, he does, does he? Tell me, um, where do you figure in the uh, plans your husband didn't have time to complete? I don't. I am going to New York tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. Ah, pity. But, uh, that still gives us four hours to kill. <laughs> and you, still in your widow's weeds. <laughs> <laughs> so he fucks his, uh, that guy's widow. <laughs> yeah, after presumably being ravaged in the previous room, because right. when he walks out of the room, he like stumbles out. Like I wasn't sure if he was drunk or if he was just sore, but like there he was clearly through the ringer. And he goes over to this room and immediately is ready to go again. So uh, my my hat is off to him. Uh, I'm wondering if guns give him a specific kind of uh, you know rush because she pulled that gun out and all of a sudden he's like ready to go. Yeah, I, I just. It, so that that scene felt like the most James Bond scene to me just yeah. because there's so many scenes in Bond movies where even even the ones we've talked about that are on the list of him, you know, getting some kind of information from a lady and then suddenly they're like, you know, oh, well, uh, I don't have to go anywhere for a while. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I mean, when we need the, the next James Bond movie to have a scene where like Daniel Craig walks into uh, uh, he like walks into uh, 7-Eleven. He's like, uh uh, do you, do you, do you have uh, slurpees here, love? And she's like, uh, yeah, it's down in aisle four. It's, it's the machine's down there. And he's like, all right, you want to go back and have sex? And then they do. You want it to be that blunt? Yeah, oh, exactly. Oh, I thought I thought you were going to say, like, oh, maybe I'll give you a slurpee later on. No, 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 anyway. No, my James Bond, the new James Bond, is James Bond who is very direct. <laughs> I, would like to, I would like to have sexual relations with you uh, at this moment. Hey, maybe. Uh, and yeah, maybe I have a clear consent. Maybe later, if you wish, I could put my penis in your vagina. That's that's what I would like to do. That is what I have allotted time this evening for. I don't know why I turned that into an Aussie James Bond. Hey, maybe uh, later uh, we could, uh, I could put my penis in your vagina. I've got, I've got some bats and a dove back at my place that are not alive anymore. Maybe we could do something with them. Oh, <laughs> I oh. thought you were going to say, I thought you were going to say, I've got some bats in the belfry. In the Belfry. Well, speaking of animal uh, abuse, uh, can we talk for a second about Aunt Benny Hill? 
Oh, <laughs> does he abuse an animal? No, no, he doesn't. Oh, but can we play okay. that scene? Can we play a little bit of that uh, Peach's uh, uh, sister? Well, we should set this up though. Um, yeah. So, they're, so they're, they're... they need a they need a nerd. Like every yeah, they... good heist movie, they need a nerd. Yeah. So, um, and this is also the moment where Bridger has finally uh, signed off on it. And why does he finally agree to sign off on this heist, Jason? Uh, because he wants money. Well, because there's like some something involving China. It's like a, it's like a it's like he he does it because the fiat company is bringing in like Chinese money. Or oh, something he, like that? He, yeah, because the be the the large amount of money that's passing through is yeah because the Chinese government is is building a fiat plant or something. Right. Or they're so being like, paid. Yeah. So anyways, the the money is being moved through uh uh, uh what's the name of the Turin the yeah. city Turin yes. So yes, they they need to get this man named Professor Peach. Um, so they go to speak with his sister. And uh, this is one of the best scenes in the movie, I think. Yes, well, my brother's no longer with us, I'm afraid. No. <laughs> you mean he's... um? Oh, no, 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 nothing like that. Uh, well, actually, he's in a home, yes. Well, we thought it best for his own good, you know. Uh, um, was it uh, serious, Miss Peach? Um... Serious, was it? What? Your brother in the home. Oh, yes, I'm afraid it was quite serious, dear. It's Greenfly awful. Yes. Yes, well, not to put a too fine point to it, he was discovered in the lounge. Uh, doing what, Miss Peach? Where? In the uh, lounge. Oh, yes, he was doing it. Yes. What? Oh, well, something quite obscene with Annette. Annette? Annette. She was terrified, of course. Naturally. Yes, well, would you like some tea? <laughs> okay, so... I don't know about you, and, and I'm willing to, to allow that this is maybe just a reflection on my own fucked up mind. But when that first would that first happen, I'm like, wait a minute. Is she saying that that, that, that he's in, in a home because he fucked a cat in the living room? <laughs> I didn't even think about that. No, no. that was totally what in my It's like, wait, did he fuck a cat? And then we learned that, no, that's not the case. What the, the, the joke, it turns out. Is that uh, Annette is uh, a maid, I guess. And yeah. she's. Not classically attractive, I guess we could say. Well, I think he's into I think he's into plus size women. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, beyond that, it's, it's, she's clearly not a typical '60s hot woman. She's overweight. She's rather tomboyish, short hair, and the joke seems to be that uh, uh, it, it, I, I guess that rape is funny if the girl's ugly. That's, that's I what I got from it. <laughs> did, did he? Because she okay, was terrified, so, right? <laughs> oh, okay. So he tried to assault her. Yeah. Yeah, basically. Gotcha. That's well, at least that's based on what the sister's saying. Now, maybe they were having a consensual relationship, and that's just how the sister interpret, interpreted it. Annette said she was terrified because she didn't want to admit of having relations with uh, Professor Peach. Well, I think I think he's supposed to be a dirty old man, which would play into the casting of Benny Hill in this role. True. Yes, that would definitely fit into uh, what. Although, was although. 
he's not old in this movie. He's not that old. He's like in his thirties, which is weird because I've always just pictured Benny Hill as like a 60 year old man. That's it. He's just, he's always got to have that look that it's just like, it doesn't matter how old he is. He always looks like he's a certain type of old. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I didn't even think about that. I didn't even catch on that. That was like an assault. Um, <laughs> but they do, they do start this thing, this uh, ongoing joke where he is into uh, larger ladies. Um, because okay. later on in the middle of the heist, Jason, he gets taken away by police because he tried to like grab a larger lady and they oh, both get right, taken yes. to the station. Yeah. <laughs> Which I thought was gonna throw a real wrench into their plan, but it really doesn't have any effect. <laughs> See, the thing I noticed about the ladies in this movie, at least in the um so during the heist, we have the computer room in the in the office building that controls all the traffic lights and they have cameras and everything. And I was Quite impressed to see that there was a, a very large number of ladies uh, working in in that uh, computer room, but they're also all incredibly attractive Italian ladies. So I don't know <laughs> if that was supposed to be representative of the time and that they would hire attractive ladies or just for the purposes of the movie they hired attractive ladies, but uh, it mean, was interesting. I mean, again, I think like, you know, we had Dr. No that came out in 1962. This is 1969. I think that influence hovers over this movie. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, that helped influence an entire aesthetic, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, and this is a product of that aesthetic. It, it does seem to kind of follow like where where while it's not, I mean, a purely a spy film, it does kind of follow the same look to it, the same it has like that kind vibe, of move for sure. That, yeah. that kind of coolness of a James Bond movie. Yeah. Um also I just want to say as a big like just kind of a macro point here, Jason, just kind right. of go big pulling me, back right? a little bit. That's right. Um this might be the template for every heist movie. Yes. I mean, from like the character introductions to the planning of the heist, um, we have like other tropes like, you know, and I don't think it was a trope at the time. That's the thing. But we have this like large cast, um, lots of little fun uh, appearances. Like you mentioned, Benny Hill, Noel Coward. Mm. Um, We also have like another thing that comes up a lot is you have the villains like the mafia. And then Mm. you have uh, characters like Shades of Grey, like Mr. Bridger, who's kind of a villain, but he's also there. He's also being used to help the plot to help help the uh the heist um they even have uh they even have the thing that comes up in so many of these movies where one of them one of the gang is temporarily uh taken out of the equation because they fall like for their their particular weakness or whatever and that's benny hill later on when he gets you know when he gets arrested um they 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 do the they have the scenes where we see them like practicing the moves which then Mm -hmm. pay off later uh and just and and all this stuff I'm watching it and I'm like, man, I feel like I've seen this a hundred times, but then I go, yeah. I've only seen this a hundred times after 1969. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There, there were heist movies before 1969, but yeah, this definitely is a distillation of kind of that format. Yeah, I don't think anything before this like quite nailed it down like this movie. Because I'm pretty sure uh, uh, Ocean's Eleven was before this, wasn't it? Uh, 1960, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I'd have to watch that because. I mean, maybe they did have that down to a science. I mean, I know the remake is like uh, very close to this in terms of like, you know, mapping out um, how these movies go. But I, I mean, I've never seen the Rat Pack version, mm. but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, th- I think this is this is like the, this is the earliest, most famous one that I can think of. Yeah, but this format, too, even applies to video games. Like, you know, you kind of have that – like Mass Effect is a good example. It's not a game about a heist, but it is. You know, you're, you're getting your team together. You're uh, planning out stuff, and then you're eventually executing some sort of ultimate uh, uh, plan to uh, uh, achieve whatever goal you're trying to have. And 
yeah, so th- this is a template for even more than just movies, I would say. Also, I just wanted to point out there, as I mentioned to Brendan earlier, there is an Italian job video game. Uh, we don't have any footage from it, but uh, look it up because there's a really bad Michael Caine impersonator in it. Uh, so, and, and that's quite fun. <laughs> and it's Caine. based on this movie. It's based on this specific movie. It came out two years before the remake. Look, I'm Michael Caine, okay? <laughs> you might have actually, you know what, 1998, you probably, or like 2001. What was my, oh, that was too. Okay, that was Planet of the Apes, Mark Wahlberg, so maybe not. They couldn't have afforded him in uh, 2001. If they'd have made that game in 1996, I bet you they could have got him. Yeah, two years before Boogie Nights, I think they could have done it. The same year that, well, hold on, Jason, that's the same year that Box Office Smash Fear came out. Oh, well. And also, Marky Marky Mark had already been in his own Sega CD game, uh, him and the Funky Bunch, where you could edit their music video. (laughs) Sounds amazing. Um, Guys, the movie Fear... If you ever want to watch a scene where Mark Wahlberg fingers Reese Witherspoon to <laughs> Wild Horses, then that's the movie for you. Wow. I mean, that's the movie that I've been dreaming of. How did I not know it existed? <laughs> it's it's pretty great. <laughs> I just assumed that uh, the the classic uh, first-person horror game Fear was based on that movie, but uh, there is no fingering in Fear, uh, except there is fingering <laughs> in Fear. That's- it also sounds like when someone says, like, there's no fun in, in, in the military. There's no fingering in fear. There's no crying in baseball. <laughs> there's no fingering in baseball. The classic line from a league of the Well, league. I don't know what kind of baseball leagues you were in, Brendan, but uh, I must have had a different experience. So, uh, moving on. <laughs> and so, I mean, let's... Uh, okay, can I tell you another movie? There's another movie on this list that we've already talked about, and maybe this will be weird, but that... Sure. The other movie on this list that really reminded me that this movie really reminded me of, and just in the format, Saturday night and Sunday morning. No, no, it reminded me of the Dambusters. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you had mentioned that uh, in a Facebook conversation we had, and I agree absolutely. Uh, if the Dambusters wasn't uh, uh, boring for the first half of it, you might have this movie. <laughs> well, yeah, because I mean, this movie is essentially the first 45, 50 minutes or so um, are setting it up, setting up the big heist. Which, mm. and again, like you said, it's not boring. It's not just like, oh, we're waiting to get to the heist. Like, I think all the stuff in the first half of the movie is pretty enthralling. And yeah. there's lots of fun acting choices. And there's some funny bits. And, and it moves along and, at a pretty good pace. Yeah. Oh, it's very well paced for a movie uh, for a movie from 1969. I mean, it, it, it doesn't really stop. And, and then, you know, the last uh, bit of this movie is the heist. And boy, oh boy, I didn't think... I was that into like stunt driving or like car, you know, car chase scenes. But this movie is, this heist scene is amazing. It is. And, it's, and I think it's heightened by the fact that we know that it is a real, like it's really happening because that was all they had in 1969. They had oh, to do it yeah. practically. They didn't have CG or, or convincing models. They had to actually have dudes driving these cars in crazy ways up and well down fucking stairs <laughs> the iconic image of the italian job is a mini going down a flight of stairs i mean on top of a building yeah oh that jump they do between buildings it's like is that even possible but they fucking did it i i don't even want to imagine um how much of this was completely 100 percent safe yeah oh. <laughs> i mean they did have a budget of three million dollars at the time Ditch. which in today's money is quite a bit i guess well, I mean, given how many cars they destroy in the course of this movie, yeah, they definitely spent some money on it. 
I did learn. <laughs> I did learn. Now, of course, I would argue, um, despite Michael Caine, Noel Coward, Benny Hill, all those people, Irene Handel, all being very good in this movie, the stars of the movie are the cars. Yeah, definitely, especially because they're you know they they figure so prominently into the end that this chase is going on with these red, white, and blue minis uh, that are being pursued by very half-hearted Italian police. But the minis, um, the minis that were actually destroyed, I guess most of these minis that were destroyed were already kind of on the verge of like a lot of them didn't even work. Well, and I think part of that is because if I, I, I feel like I read something about this movie where BMW gave them like a handful of minis, but then mm-hmm. didn't give them any more, but just offered to sell them more. So they had to had to buy them, even though Fiat was offering just to give them cars as many cars as they wanted. They didn't want to use the Fiats in the movie. They wanted to use minis specifically. So they stuck with them. By the way, uh, the the amount of money the the amount of money that they're stealing, they say it's you know four million dollars, right? Yeah. Uh, and they so. and they basically pile all this gold into all the minis um, and make their way out of there. Do you want to? I got some stats here on how how much this weighs. Sure. Okay. Let me know. So gold um, had at the time in 1968 co- cost $38.69 per troy ounce. Okay. Okay. So $4 million in gold bars would have weighed about 7,000 pounds, requiring each of the three minis to carry about 2,300 pounds in addition (laughs) to the driver and passenger. Since a 1968 mini only weighs about uh, about 1,400 pounds, each of these vehicles would have had to carry one and a half times its own weight in gold. Yeah, so shit, wow. So they wouldn't have been drifting around corners quite as uh, readily as they were in that movie. They would have had a hard time turning those fucking cars. Or even having yeah, a- I, I mean, so I guess what I'm saying is I don't think they actually <laughs> went full uh, full realism and put gold in these uh, minis. I mean, yeah, this the whole thing at the end is just it's just incredible to watch. Like you said, it's all practical. Obviously, there's all it's all stunt work. It's all stunt driving. And I just I can't even imagine. I can't imagine the prep that went into this. That bit where they're going down the the tunnel underground, that is really cool, where they're kind of weaving back and forth, you know, as they're driving down this tunnel to escape. It's it's so cool. And it's and it's such a neat camera angle, too, because it's like, I don't know, they must have been another car driving down the tunnel and just uh, having the cars follow them. But it looked really cool. Well, and again, it's something that you watch now and you're like. This this looks this looks like a very difficult scene to film, and uh, it's still impressive. Yeah, yeah, that's and, that, and that's a testament to that this thing kind of holds up. Like that you wouldn't be crazy to see this sort of scene in a modern movie. Just to add to that, we also have uh, that wonderful song playing. With this is the Self Preservation Society. Very sixties, very appropriate. Do you know that that's actually being sung by the cast of the movie? Oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's fun. <laughs> um so yeah so the stunt work amazing um can we talk about the kind of okay can we talk about camp freddy uh you mean the guy that looks like uh uh, rick flair had sex with uh freddy from uh (laughs) scooby-doo sure i like it (laughs) well no like he literally looks like freddy from scooby-doo in one scene he's got the scarf on and the white shirt and the blonde hair (laughs) so I mean, I don't think it's super subtle that Camp Freddy is supposed to be gay, right? He's coded yeah, well, as gay. There's a right? couple. I mean, I mean, everybody knew Noel Coward was gay, I think, even back in 1970. But then there was, you know, I think everybody knew it in 19. I think everybody knew that in 1940. But there's like different. There are actually numerous, a, a number of characters because there's him. There's the the Noel Coward's assistant that kind of comes across as gay. And then there's also a tailor at the beginning of the movie where mm. uh, what does Michael Caine say to him? He says, um, 
Shorten the sleeves, love. I'm not a gorilla. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which I gotta say, um, as flamboyant as that character is at the beginning, and how Camp Freddy definitely gives off that, like, you know, he's coded as a gay character. Um, they're not like they're not. Uh, it's not a total like hateful portrayal. Well, no, because it's like it's just almost like they're they're coded that way, but then it's not really brought into the mix. Yeah, it's just it's just that that's it. They're just part of the the character background. They're you know one of many. So do you think and Camp Freddy is supposed to be uh, Mr. Bridger, like Noel Coward's like lover? Uh, I, I mean, was there was there any direct evidence to that other than the fact that the, he just happened to be a gay character? I mean, he was it was his guy, right? I just thought that they had they seemed to have a very close relationship. I just thought that was oh. interesting. Oh, maybe, maybe. Well, can we? Can Is there any gay relationships in uh, in uh, the 2003 Italian Job? Did Edward Norton and uh, and Marky Mark get it down? Uh, I forgot that Edward Norton was in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he was contractually obligated to be in that one. Uh, he had to do it. He owed uh, Paramount of movies, so they made him do that one. Well, I don't know. I don't know about that, Jason, but I do remember the. Um, I can confirm the very. No, I, I just saying I don't remember about if they if they went to town on each other, but I uh, I can tell you I do recall a, a super hot blowjob scene between Donald Sutherland and Jason Statham. Well, I mean, that's why Jason Statham got into making movies. He knew that was his ultimate plan was that one day he'd uh, be in a sex scene with Donald Sutherland. Oh, because, yeah. Because I'm going to shoot. I'm going to shoot. That's right. And you know why? It's because he really the, – the one movie that, that could only the, – the one movie that Jason Statham described in, in every interview he's ever done as his sexual awakening was uh, Don't Look Now. <laughs> Just every the interview, last it's always, uh, you know, when I was a boy, you know, when you first wank off, when you're 13, it was me. It was Don't Look Now. It was. Julie Christie, oh. Donald Sutherland. That's a whole lot of sexy, I'll tell you. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I think that, okay, so I'm glad you saw it. it. It wasn't super subtle, but I was like, oh yeah, they're definitely throwing in like a couple of, uh, a couple of effeminate characters in here as well. I think that this is just a reflection of Hollywood liberals. Oh boy. Making, here we making go. gay people out to be normal people with regular oh, lives and making no. be criminals just as much as anybody else. Somebody hit mute. <laughs> You can catch me this week on the Rush Limbaugh show, <laughs> and, then, and then I'll be doing Ben Shapiro's podcast. Oh no! <laughs> oh no! We're gonna have free and f- an open discussion. <laughs> oh, stop the count and count the votes. <laughs> I also just want to go back to. Can we go back to Benny Hill just for a second? All right. Imagine the reaction, because I mean, his show had been on the air for 14 years at this time. Wow. So he was people knew who he was. So he's been doing that that creepy old man character since his like 20s. <laughs> yeah. Basically. Um but yeah, people knew who he was and here you have him playing like, you know, um a professor and computer expert and they they say he's a computer expert from TV. So I mean, that feels thrown in to be like, <laughs> "Aha." Um and, and and I'm I wonder if like the whole thing with him being into plus size women is a joke because on the Benny Hill show he was always being followed by more of the women that we see in this movie like the you know stereotypically attractive Italian ladies. It's him trying to break out of his uh, uh you know the the box that he's been put in. Mm-hmm. 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 Do you know uh, this movie actually has the um a quote that is was voted like the number one. Was voted like the number one most uh, best quote in like British film history or something like that. Oh, is it? Uh, uh, I said to just blow the bloody doors off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when they're when they're practicing uh, blowing up the or you know doing their heist and yeah, he accidentally blows up the entire vehicle. 
that is a, that is a great line. That seems really cool too. Like the way they cut that, how he's counting down, and in between he's like five, and then it like does a quick zoom on the van four, and then it zooms in closer three, and then on and on until one, and then he just blows it up. And then I thought I said, "Oh, they blow the bloody doors off." <laughs> <laughs> and I do like that scene too. The editing in that scene is a lot of fun. Um, in terms of like they're cutting back to to Camp Freddy meeting with Mr. Bridger because Bridger is providing all the the money right and all the vehicles and all that stuff, and you just see cars exploding and like crashing because they can't they can't nail the the jump that they're trying to do and you see uh camp freddy saying like uh we need more cars he's like what do you mean <laughs> i think i've confused camp freddy with a different character camp freddy's the guy he's like the yeah he's like the number one i'm thinking of there's also another character that has a super blonde wig and he and literally looks like freddy from uh scooby-doo is oh it, no i'm talking Arthur, about maybe maybe i'm talking about camp one Freddy. Of the drivers, like, i think Camp Freddy yeah, is Bridger's guy. I think I know who you mean now. Now I'm yeah. on the same page. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, no, he, he it's a fun little uh, cut back and forth. Mm-hmm. Like, also, I feels I know it's the Italian job, so it yeah. shouldn't be surprising, but it feels very like new wave European sometimes with some of the shots, like the zooms yeah. and everything. Oh, yeah. Or, or like even Wes Anderson. It also feels like this movie sort I mean, I, I don't know that I'm not going to say that this movie is, is a racist screed against Italians, but it almost feels like it's the British versus the Italians because like just because they're talking about like the British balance sheet and the expenditures and getting this money back to Britain will be good for the country as a whole. And then they, you know, they're outwitting these Italian police and they're in and they're even in minis that are red, white and blue, the colors of the Union Jack. <laughs> Like it just it comes across as like yeah we're we're British and we're getting the best of all these Italian idiots. <laughs> well, and when and when Michael Caine and his crew meet up with the magical mafia, um, he tells yes. them like he tells them like you because they, they're about to they they run their cars off the cliff. Yeah, they just uh, dumped them down them. the side of the cliff. Which, which and then, clearly the producers of this movie had no environmental concerns. They just fucking threw cars down the side of the Italian Alps. It was 1969, baby. Life was fast and loose. Ah, uh, freedom. Um, True freedom. <laughs> But but when he says like Michael Caine essentially threatens him that if they if they kill them on top of ruining their cars, like he's like, we're going to bulldoze every Italian. He basically like essentially says we're going to take down every spaghetti house in Britain. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it's a a big threat. (laughs) We're going to knock up every Italian business and destroy them. Fuck. It's ballsy. But then but then at the end of it, he's like, all right, boys, let's go. He gets in the car and drives away. And then Michael Caine turns around and all the mobsters are just gone. They've just yeah. teleported away. Again, I, I that stuff like that is so goofy, and I really like it. <laughs> it is. It's enjoyable. I also like that. I also enjoy the fact that they're not flawless, brilliant thieves. No, certainly. Um, because you have. I mean, I'm not gonna say I, I. I do enjoy Ocean's Eleven. I like the Ocean's Eleven remake. I like um, Ocean's Twelve is another story, but I do like Ocean's Eleven. Mm. But like in that movie, they're very suave. Um, they don't really make any mistakes. They get the job done swiftly. And in this movie, there it it's kind of more messy. Yes, but but the plan does pretty much go off as they expected to for the most part. They do have a few uh, monkey wrenches thrown in their way, but like they get the van, they drop a bunch of smoke, they get that water. Uh, the, that little tank that was going behind it, I didn't realize it was a water cannon initially, but it makes sense because it'd be <laughs> it'd be a bit rough to be firing live tank ordnance in the middle of the city. <laughs> I was also trying to think of like what like what would be even be close to this in terms of like the driving scenes and all I could think of was like the French Connection or uh, the Blues Brothers. 
Yeah, Blues Brothers definitely came to mind when they were getting chased by the cops. Although, again, the Italian police in this movie seem much lazier. They, 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 it, the Italian police in this movie, Brendan, are the equivalent of like the bad guys in a kung fu movie where they only attack one at a time. So they're yeah. like being chased by one car and then they like outwit it and that car crashes into some water and then they drive off and then there's like another car and a bike behind them and then they fuck them up and then they drive on and then there's another car. Like <laughs> it's like they only had one, one or two police cars available to them and maybe a bike. <laughs> well, speaking of bike, I do like that bit where um, also later on when their cars are destroyed and somebody says something about like, oh, I forget who has the line, but somebody says something like uh, what? Um, they're not as, they're not as stupid as they look hard cut to Michael Caine riding like a little bicycle. (laughs) (laughs) That, that, that made me laugh. Yeah. But they, you know, but it's fun. It's fun. That's why we're watching because we want to have a good time. We want to have a good time. We want to have fun. Again, I had no expectations of what this movie, what the tone of this movie was going to be. So I was, I was just as surprised as you were. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, so I do. Okay. Well, you know what? We can't go any further. I know we've talked about Professor Peach already, but we really have to listen to Benny Hill um, talk about his predilection for uh, a certain type of woman. <laughs> Let's hear him. Professor Peach, do you see what I'm getting at? Hmm. Your brawn, my brain. I'm not stupid, you know. It's cooperation, isn't it? Like that flagpole out there. Flagpole? The flagpole in the yard. Oh. I mean, I know. If there was a convex mirror up there, 27 degrees vertical, 42 degrees horizontal, I could see straight into Matron's bedroom. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, somebody else would have to be up the pole to fix it. I couldn't do it myself. (laughs) It's cooperation, you see. She's a big woman, you know. Here. Wait till you see them Italian birds. Are they big? I like them big. (laughs) They're enormous. Really? Very, very, very big. Would we uh, wear stockings over our heads? Oh, no need for you to. Oh, I'd like that. I could steal one of Matron's, couldn't I? We'll have you out of here in no time. Of course, I wouldn't want to get Matron into trouble. Not that way, anyway. (laughs) She's big. Big! Sorry, I love the way he says at the end, she's big. Big! Big! So that wasn't really what we were talking about, but I just wanted to play that. So, yeah, the ending sequence, I mean, we have the heist working and we're cutting back and forth between that. And it's so great. Bridger is like (laughs) the whole prison, guards included, know that this heist has paid off. Yeah. Oh, I also like, like, here's the thing, though. Their their operational security wasn't exactly the best because they were literally making films that they were then developing and editing into like these presentations to send to Bridger so that he could see what was going on. Clearly, everybody knew what was happening. Yeah, he was the one who pointed out that the mafia was on their trail. Yes. And yeah, the guards the guards are completely in the know and they just like nothing happens because of it. You even have a scene where as they're about to watch the film, one of the guards walks in and Bridger just kinda gives him a nod, like, mm. How do you like your new house? And he's like, Oh, it's great and he's like, You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> he got him a house. <laughs> what a nice guy. Oh my god. And and then at the end of the movie, once we've uh once the word comes down that the heist has been successful, oh, oh and, almost and, like a processional. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. He's coming down the stairs and everybody's like what they're all chanting like Bridger, Bridger, Bridger. And they're like playing, they're like banging on pots and stuff and like playing along to this like musical fanfare. <laughs> I think I think it's set to, it's almost set to the tune of like God save the queen. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> A fascist regime! <laughs> Not quite. 
And this movie, we um, absolutely need to need to talk about the very ending because. Oh, by the way, I, I gotta say there is one there is one person of color in this movie. Yes, and he is the bus driver. <laughs> and I think was his name they, Big Dave or Big Jim or big, something. Big Big Will Big William or something like so that. He's called Big Willie, and we know why he's called that. <laughs> I I wrote that down. I said, was that a joke about him having a big dick because he's a black I, guy? I have to assume, yes. Yeah, I guess. Exactly. It's 1969, Brendan. What else could it possibly be? <laughs> I mean, I will say he has a few lines, so that puts it above a few other movies on this list. True. <laughs> but yeah so they're going he's driving the bus they're they've got all the gold now they've transferred all the gold they've gotten rid of all the minis um he's driving very reckless recklessly mm-hmm. um and they end up uh dangling over a cliff half the half the bus mm-hmm. uh, you know hanging over the cliff and the other half on the road which is i believe a, in the south park episode as well something similar happens although there's no gold involved in that one but yes it's it's hanging over the side and then they have to decide how they're going to go about trying to retrieve the gold michael kane makes a few moves but the gold keeps falling uh sliding away from him yeah and honestly f- let's talk briefly about physics i don't know what he thinks he's going to do he's like trying to crawl across the floor like he's going to grab the bottom of the pallet but then what it's like four tons of gold (laughs) what is he going to (laughs) do yeah i mean he's i I mean i don't think he's supposed to be uh the most brilliant guy no (laughs) um but he is trying to like slowly crawl over and i guess he's just gonna grab it by the ropes and drag it like i don't (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, is he going to get them to grab his legs or whatever? But we never find out because the movie just ends and it's great. It, it does. <laughs> he says, what does he say? He says something like, uh, I've got a great idea or something like that. Yeah. And then it like just pans out. The music picks up and then the credits roll <laughs> yeah. as we see this, as we see the bus just kind of balancing on the edge of the cliff. So, Jason, I don't know um, how much you or anyone else will be interested in this, but um, there was some science that went into this scene. <laughs> Oh, really? Um, a scientific study, I guess, that other people did, not the film itself. Um, so the Royal Society of Chemistry held a competition, and uh, and and they and they tried to someone tried to figure out what to do to to get out of this situation. There was a gentleman named John Godwin, not mm. one of the Godwin boys oh, in WWE. Unfortunate. Yeah. Um, and this was his solution to um, to getting out of this situation. And this is actually proven scientifically. All right. You ready for this? I'm ready for this. Break and remove two large side windows just aft of the pivot point and let the glass fall outside to lose its weight. Break two windows over the two front axles, keeping the broken glass on board to keep its weight for balance. Let a man out on a rope through the front broken windows, not to rest his weight on the ground, who deflates all the bus's front tires to reduce the bus's rocking movement about its pivot point. Drain the fuel tank, which is aft of the pivot point, which changes the balance enough to let a man get out and gather heavy rocks to load in the front of the bus. Unload the bus, wait until a suitable vehicle passes on the road, hijack it, and carry the gold away in it. Now, again, with real physics, assuming we were dealing with real physics, but which we wouldn't be because if we were dealing with real physics, uh, those minis wouldn't have made it anyways. Right. Um, but, like, yeah, they're going to wait for, like, a big truck to come by <laughs> so that yeah. they can load all this fucking gold onto it. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're going to wait for, like, BJ and the Bear to drive by. Oh, that's right. Or maybe uh, the Bandit and Snowball. <laughs> On a Euro- oh man, what a Smokey and the Bandit did like a European run. Very. Why didn't they? Can we still do I it? Know. Oh. Mm. Well, Sally Field's still alive, so maybe. Yeah, that's all we need. Sally bandit. Field. Sally Field can play all the roles. That's right. Finally, finally, <laughs> she plays the Bandit. She plays Snowball. She plays the Sheriff. And Mrs. Gump. 
and Mrs. Gump, obviously. So uh, also, um, according to a making of documentary, uh, there were four different endings that they wanted to come out that they that they were, you know, contemplating. And the producer was like, you know what? Uh, he basically said, uh, let's leave it open for a sequel, which to me feels very modern because they want a sequel. But that does sound like very much like a movies nowadays where um, they just, they they end and you have this little thing at the end. It's like, just let the movie live on its own. You, we don't need a sequel tease at the end of everything. Horror movies are the worst for this. Yeah, no, every movie's got to have a setup. and But but then it, we end up with those fun moments where there's a setup and it never pays off, like uh, yeah. Godzilla 1998 or um, uh, Beastmaster. <laughs> or the or the newest uh, Hellboy remake. Yes, absolutely. Sure, I haven't seen it. Uh, I know you have, just because it you're has, a sucker for punishment. It is the most like cringeworthy sequel teasing ever, because you know that shit's not getting a sequel. It fucking bombed. To those in the know, and I know, Brennan, you're not one of them, but uh, if you've played Horizon Zero Dawn, I like that. I like how that game ends because it ends – the end wraps itself up and it's all lovely in a neat bow. And then there's a little stinger that is the setup for a sequel. The ending itself is not the setup for the sequel. The ending is complete. That being said, I do really like the way this ends. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And and especially because there was no sequel, it just – it's a lovely – it's kind of like The Sopranos. It's like it's up to you to decide what happens. Yeah, Italian, the Sopranos is a remake of the Italian job. Absolutely. Um, so I guess originally there was an idea where um, when when the sequel was going to be made, there was going to be uh, helicopters that would save the bus. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael Caine actually revealed that the ending would have been him crawling up, switching on the engine, and staying there for four hours until all the petrol ro- runs out. Uh, he said the van bounces back up so we can all get out, but then the gold goes over. And then when the bus goes down containing all the gold... Uh, the mafia picks it up and then the, uh, you know, the gang acts like they're very grateful. But in the sequel, they actually just try to steal the gold back from the mafia. Uh, I would have just killed them all. <laughs> I doubt for a second. I thought that was going to happen. Mm, that was good. And, and then the, they could have been in heaven and there would have been like a, a heist in heaven. <laughs> we go to get we go to get Jesus's sword. <laughs> yes. The, the sword that Jesus famously carried. <laughs> His gladius. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's what he fought off. That's why he didn't get crucified, right? That's, he had the sword. Well, that's exactly that's why he murdered all those people in the in the temp temple. He knocked over their tables and then murdered their families. <laughs> oh, people people that have any shred of religion are so angry right now. <laughs> Welcome to Theology Cast with Brendan and Jason. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think um I think maybe at this point then I guess we just uh just. Talk about your bits and bobs, but um, I think we're gonna I think we're gonna take a break first, though, and oh. uh, we're gonna hear from some sponsors, and we will be right back. Age of Radio. And we're back. Bits, 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 yeah, I just want to throw in real quick here that I forgot to mention. Um, 
when they're in the prison with Bridger, like Noel Coward, sure. um, they actually had to film that in Ireland. And huh. the reason for that was because Noel Coward was a tax exile. Oh, so he and was he living could, in Ireland to avoid British taxes? Yeah, he couldn't film in Britain because he would be arrested. <laughs> what an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> He's like the John Cleese of his day. Well, when he gets out of prison, well, who is it? Is it who says it? somebody? I forget who even says it, but says the line. I hope he likes spaghetti. They serve it four times a day in Italian prisons. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Uh, and it's clear that crime must pay because he like gets out of prison, gets a new set of clothes and gets a sweet car. Well, I guess his, his sweet car was in storage and he had put uh, some money in it mm. uh, in under the bonnet so that he had a little something to, you know, a little, little nest egg to get out to. Which for is something that really should be for all prisoners. They should have a little nest egg to get out to, cool car, yeah. suit. For for a second, when we when we played that scene earlier of Noel Coward using his private toilet, and then when he flushed it, I looked at, I looked away for a few seconds before that. So I was like, did he just take a shit with Michael Caine in the room with him? <laughs> like that is a baller move. Well, I mean, yes, absolutely. And and, and I, I if that wasn't in the the remake, then they made a, a terrible mistake because that is exactly what he should have done. Because he is that sort of dude. He should be able to just t- sit down and take a shit in front of anybody. And what are they going to do about it? He's like LBJ used to do that, I guess. So when he was president he would like make people come into the bathroom with him while he took a shit so they can continue talking about whatever they were talking about what are you serious oh yeah absolutely wow jesus because he uh, he also had a massive dick so he had lots of confidence well that's what they call them lbj that's right (laughs) um thank you i do like the idea of causing a, a traffic jam to to pull off their heist it's an interesting and, and very big uh, big way to go about it. I also like that the computer program that they have uh, that they need to replace is on what appears to be at least one and a quarter inch tape, which is very old and it's massive. <laughs> like that, I'm sure that, that that massive reel of tape holds like barely 100 kilobytes of data or something. But that's what they had computer programs back on then because computer pro- computers themselves were the size of buildings. Mm-hmm. Those are the days, you know. No, reminisce, Jason, reminisce. That's right. Um, oh, and there. Oh, also, we we didn't mention too. There's also a a very important football match going on during this heist between England and Italy. So it provides a lot of cover in that there's already a lot of like British people in Turin for this match. So it's they're less likely to stand out just for being not Italian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. 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 And it's a big team. It's a big fucking team. Like when we think of heist movies, like you know, you think of Ocean's Eleven. That's what eleven people. It feels like there's at least fifteen to twenty what? people involved in this one. Where'd you, well, hold on a second there, Jason. Where'd you pull <laughs> that number out of your ass? I'm just good at estimating. Yeah, there's there's a ton of people on this team. But to be fair, though, there is a lot of stuff they need to do. Absolutely, absolutely. It's just funny, like that. There's like this big boardroom table with all these people around it. It's like, oh yeah, we got to keep this secret, right? I also do like that boardroom. A boardroom meeting scene. Michael Caine is like, don't make fun of Benny Hill for liking bigger ladies. That's right. You leave him alone for his uh, his uh, personality quirks. I think they said. Yeah. Well, at one point, and at one point, he meets up with uh, Bridger, and they meet up because they arrange a funeral. Uh, now I don't know if it's if it's actually a funeral, if it's like a fake funeral, or if it's a real funeral, or if they actually just killed someone so that they could have a funeral for them so that they could arrange this meeting. Um, I think it's a fake funeral, and I think it's because. <laughs> Bridger just needs to give the guards a reason for them to let him go out. Exactly. 
Exactly. And a funeral is one of the few things you can kind of get day parole for. Were you so, confused, though? At, were you confused, though, at first, with all the guys standing there? Because I thought that was the mafia at first. Oh, uh, no, I just figured it's like any sort of mob funeral. There'd just be all sorts of toughs at, a, at the, you know, there because that's often, you know, you, you see in like mob shows and TV uh, show or, or mob movies and TV shows like that's where the FBI likes to go because they'll always see a bunch of mobsters together in the same place and they'll take but, pictures of them. And yeah, but no, but wasn't that wasn't that the crew, though? Yeah, yeah, they were all there. That's what, I, that's what I mean. Like, they were all, they all looked like the mafia guys. Yeah, well, it's because they're all kind of their own mafia, right? I guess. I mean, who's sure. the real mafia, Brennan? I don't know, man. It's the government. Oh, wow. Also, Shit. I like the, the, the fog in the scene was nice. It reminded me of Holy Grail. Mm-hmm. Uh, I enjoyed Benny Hill's line where he goes, a pity people aren't as lovely as flowers, isn't it? <laughs> I missed that one. Yeah, it's, well, it's, a, it's a good point. Uh, yeah. You're into flowers, sure. Yeah, uh, such a waste of beautiful cars in this movie. Like with the bulldozer just destroying these lovely cars for no reason. Yeah, again, I think most of these cars. Amusement. I think most of these cars were written off at the time, though. Ah, it's terrible. It's terrible. Somebody could have rebuilt it. Uh, oh, when the when they cut the power, the the people scream. Like like were people that scared when the power went out that they would literally scream? I mean, electricity had just come out the year before, right? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, <laughs> I, I enjoy the oh he says just remember in this country they drive on the wrong side of the road <laughs> and then and then everybody's disappointed reaction right after yeah uh, <laughs> and then they, and then they all have an argument about riding they all want to ride up front because they all get sick in the back of the car and one of them even says me in the back of the motor with my asthma <laughs> yeah they're very yeah they, that's what I mean again by saying like they're not they're not doing this whole like oh everybody's really suave like everybody's kind of a, a doof. Yeah, exactly. As if you were getting real people to do this dumb thing. Yeah. Um, it looks like they've actually caused a real traffic jam to some extent because they have these very like long shots like from above Turin, uh, of the, of what appears to be a traffic jam. So that's pretty cool that they got that big chunk of this city to use for this. <laughs> they've got some real uh, connections there. Right. Uh. Oh, and uh, I guess kind of the last thing I have to say, uh, when they're when that final chase is going on and there's a wedding going on and they come down the stairs, the red mini comes extremely close to killing all three of the photographers that, that are standing there. Like he literally comes within inches of one of their, of, of one of those photographers ass. You can see it on screen. It is just, it was, there's no way that wasn't real. Like he almost hit him. Yeah. There, there are some very treacherous near, near call, uh, near death instances here. Yes. Oh, also, I thought it was funny, too, the um, the bit where the, there's the traffic jam and you just kind of have a few shots of people killing time in traffic. So, like, there's one guy, he's, like, singing to the radio. There's, like, one dude that's hitting on a lady and she slaps him. Yeah. You know, people just hanging out in traffic because that's all you could do. Or there's a couple guys playing cards. Yeah, no, I do. I do like the detail. There's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of interesting details thrown in as well to make it, like, uh, a bit richer than you would expect it to be. Hmm. And then I guess one one final thing that I noticed that was funny that during one of the shots with the cop car crashing, it was very apparent. And maybe it was just from this lovely restoration, but that there was dummies in the car, <laughs> which is understandable. But it was very clear that they were dummies. <laughs> I, I just realized uh, something, Jason. Sure. Hit Mark me. Wahlberg. Mark Wahlberg was born the year this movie came out. Wow. So it was destined to happen. That's <laughs> what you're saying. Yeah, I think it was decreed upon his birth. You think his parents conceived him at the opening night of this movie? Uh, it's it's all all signs point to yes. 
That's well, that's the story we're going with now. Mark Wahlberg was conceived <laughs> during the opening premiere of the Italian job only to go on to star in the remake many years later. <laughs> Put it on the poster. Um, <laughs> it's a long it's a bit wordy, but, you know, make it work. Speaking of poster, Jason, Ooh. I want to I want to mention something because now now we're getting into like the, the success of this movie, which, by the way, um, it doesn't go to BAFTAs. It doesn't go to the Oscars. Nothing, mm-hmm. nothing. Nothing. Uh, no recognition. It's not, it's not super appreciated at the time. It's one of those movies that grew its reputation over time. But mm. I wanted, I wanted, and I'm going to send it to you so you can see it, and I'll put it up online somewhere. But I want you to see um, what the American poster for this movie was, sure. because I think it's in, insanely misleading. So I'm just going to send this to you now. Wow. So how would you describe this poster, Jason? Well, we have what looks like Michael Caine, but could be anybody. Sitting in a chair, cross-legged, uh, wearing black gloves, dark glasses, uh, a Blues Brothers like fedora, which I'm pretty sure he doesn't wear in the movie at any point. Right. He's holding um, a very cool-looking Thompson submachine gun with a barrel clip and uh, a grip on it, which again I don't believe he ever carries in the course of the movie. Mm-hmm. And he's sitting next to a a lady, a topless lady, I believe, uh, with her back to the camera and and tattooed i suppose on her back is the plan see uh, i thought i thought when i saw that i thought those were tire tracks and i was like god I, I, damn yep. that's dark <laughs> yeah i could see why you would think that but i'm pretty yeah. sure it has to be the plan now i don't know what this um is supposed to imply but it no. is not representative of what this movie is <laughs> not at all so because in america this movie does terrible yeah this movie does not make this movie only makes like hundred eighty thousand dollars in america Ooh, ouch. Like, I mean, can you it, blame the poster for that? Is that the only marketing they did was the poster? I mean, I'm sure the trailer that they put out was probably terrible, too. But, yeah, but the poster the poster is definitely partly to blame. It's mm. it's really awful. Like, in, in terms of, like, what now, if this was the movie, it'd be pretty cool. Yeah, no, if there was a topless chick and he had a submachine gun like that, and you know, or, you know it'd be great. But that's yeah. it's not what it is, guys. It's not Blues Brothers, or rather, I guess, Blues Singular Brother. No, it's not any of that. But but um, most of the positive re- reviews at the time here uh, focused on like the climactic car chase mm-hmm. and uh, Michael Caine and Noel Coward's acting and, you know, complimenting uh, Peter Collinson's directing. So um, in, in one of the reviews, uh, somebody said Nick Higgins uh, claims that the movie makes Austin Powers wardrobe appear drab and gray. Uh, <laughs> He uh, he he complimented Michael Caine's ability to effectively portray the character, and he also praised the music of, and this is something we didn't talk about yet, but the music of Quincy Jones, because Quincy yes. Jones does the soundtrack on this movie. The the cue uh, early in his career, I have to imagine. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, it would have to be fairly early. Uh, th- then again, on the other side, we have someone, uh, Vincent Canby, uh, mm. who at the time of the film's release said that the caper film had been made before and much better. He said that the uh, he complimented the film's uh, like you know the sophistication, the technology side of it. Um, but he said, and this is his words. I'm using his words. Sure. Uh, criticized what he saw as a quote an emotionally retarded plot. Oh. Um, he said he. And this is where I was talking about earlier, where he was concerned that Noel Coward's appearance in the movie um, was exploiting him in unpleasant ways by surrounding his character with images of the royal family, which had not knighted him at the time. <laughs> um, and and a, a newer review too in Time Magazine felt that the film spent too much time focusing on the caper itself as opposed to building the characters. 
And it says, this is crazy, criticizing the car chases as dull and deafening. Well, I don't agree on either of those counts. Uh, my ears were not blown out, and I was uh, entertained the whole time, so fuck that person. As far as the characters go, they build those characters to exa- like exactly how much you should in a movie like this. Yeah, I mean, they don't go super deep on them, but, you know, this isn't the type of movie where we necessarily need, like, you know, a massive backstory to anybody. Like, I, I, I am, just yeah. Just need the I, basics of, that, of them. And I am kind of glad that we don't get the, the a trope that comes up all the time now. We don't have Michael Caine being like, oh, this is one last job, one last job, and then I'm out. One last job, and then we're going to go find my beloved lady who's living in Jamaica, and then we're going to live forever. Oh, we we didn't talk talk about how his uh, his American girlfriend Lorna, uh, he basically tells her to fuck off. Well, so she For gets safety, him out of prison. Of yeah, but but she gets him out of prison, takes him back to that room. He's ravaged by a number of women, and then later in the movie, he's back at her place and he's having sex with a a, a couple other women. And she gets mad about it. And of course he's like, but I, but you had that whole room of women for me. And she's like, that was your coming out present. Well, I think she's also more upset. The fact that he just like abandoned her there. Yes, I suppose. Yeah. And then, yeah. Um, tells her to and, then, and then, yeah. And then he, t- and then he basically tells her like, you go to Jamaica and wait for me. <laughs> and, and then they play her off as kind of dumb. Cause she looks back and she's like, bye Charlie. I love you. And he's like, he's basically being like, shut up, shut up, shut up. Just go. <laughs> yeah. It was a, it was weird. It's like they fridged that character. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's that's really all I have about this uh, about this film. Jason, Italian Job, number thirty six. Mm. What do you think? What do you think about this movie? I well, first I want to ask you, what do you think an Italian job is? <laughs> well, I mean, if it's anything like a Brazilian, I mean, I think it involves a lot of pubic hair and getting your teeth flossed. Oh, okay. So it's something I'm familiar with. Cool. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Italian job as a movie. Entertaining as hell. Yeah. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It was great pace, very colorful, fun characters, great action scenes. I mean, and and holds up really well in 2020. Uh, This is a movie that I think you can go back to and and enjoy as much as you would any modern kind of heist movie. Yeah, I I completely agree. I I I like this movie. I thought like I figured I would like this movie going in, mm. um, but I liked it even more. Like I think it went above my expectations, which yeah. admittedly I didn't have like crazy expectations. But I I, I mean I think it uh, I think it soars above them, and it's uh, it's very fun. Uh, it's very fast paced. We I can't stress enough how this is not what you would think in terms of pacing. Like this thing moves. Yeah, no, I a, thought this would be drier and more dour and and certainly along with your comparison to the dam busters yeah i expect it like kind of a really boring kind of lead up and then a cool heist and yeah i I got a pretty actually pretty enjoyable lead up and then a really fucking cool heist yeah 99 minutes it moves at a good at a good rate Hmm. um so i will i will join with you in saying that this movie is fantastic yeah um it it makes a lot more sense to me now that I see it when I see it at number 36 than it did when I first looked at this list. Mm-hmm. And um, Noel Coward, you're the best. Always entertaining. Yes. But Jason, I want to reveal to the people that we are um, we are recording in separate locations this week. Um, and that is because yes. zone three you know, is currently locked down to orange level. So yes. uh, I love how our bubbles are restricted. <laughs> 
<laughs> love how specific you're uh, making it for the people. That's right. They need to know what our situation is. Uh, but So we can't record in person, but we are remote. And Brendan uh, physically possesses our dice. I do. And if you want to roll them, it is your turn this week because I rolled last week. Yeah, I think I'm just going to roll them. And uh, I've got the list in front of me here. Yeah, that's perfect. That's that's what I was going to ask you. Well, Jason, I don't know if you can see this on the microphone camera, uh, but I have a red uh, D- D10 here and a green tens D10. Mm-hmm. And I am going to roll. <laughs> oh, okay. Carry on up the Kyber. Let's do it. <laughs> Yay. Finally. Uh, I could lie and then just... I could lie about the number, Jason. But then we wouldn't be the uh, uh, trustworthy film critics that we are. You're right. We? You're right. I don't want to. I don't want to do that. All right. Well, we're gonna. I'm gonna roll the dice, and then whatever number we get on this dice will be, will correspond with the film on the BFI Top 100 that we will talk about next week. So, here we go. I don't know if you can hear the dice at all. I did. Okay, so we're in the 30s, Jason. Okay. Probably not that much. Gotcha. Come on. Uh, 32. Uh, room at the top. I already watched it. Okay. Well, it was pretty good, but we don't need to. was 30. good, yeah. All right. Well, we're in the 70s. All right. All right. Uh, 71. Uh, Elizabeth. I already watched it. Okay. Another good one. Glad we don't have to watch it again. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, we're in the 60s. Okay. 61. All right. Oh. Uh, next week, folks, we will be doing 1962's Tony Richardson movie, The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. Oh, boy. Yes. Never heard of this one before. Don't know anything about it. Jason, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to spoiler alert this, even though I know nothing about it. Mm-hmm. I feel like you better you better get your dishes out because I think we're going back to the kitchen sink. Oh, boy. Here we go. It's going to be depressing. <laughs> I think I don't know I don't know for sure but, the, but uh, 1962 uh, it, it's certainly possible yeah all right well we'll talk about the loneliness of the long distance runner and also the film called the loneliness of the long distance runner uh, we'll, we'll talk week. about the general concept of being lonely while long distance running because I'm sure as all of you know Brendan and I we love to run marathons uh, we're yeah incredibly physically fit we're both jacked <laughs> uh, we're probably 300 pounds of pure muscle each yeah, but people will never know yeah, we move. I, I mean, I've, I've been clocked at near Usain Bolt levels of speed, certainly. <laughs> yeah, and I'm as fast as that guy with the fake legs who killed his girlfriend. Oh, Oscar Pistorius. Yeah, you've always <laughs> been sort of an Oscar Pistorius character. Wait, Oscar Pistorius life. killed his girlfriend? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I was talking about Lance Armstrong. Oh, well, he just killed his career. Oh, oh yeah. no. I got to mm. call my people. <laughs> You gotta you gotta end that Oscar Pistorius spokesman job we hired him for. <laughs> no, he was gonna be on next week. <laughs> I had him plug in our chariots of fire episode. All right, everyone's got everything's gotta get shifted around here. Um, okay. Well, he also we'll would be a weird guest because he's not dead. So <laughs> that's true. He has to die first. His legs are dead though. Could we have his legs as guests? <laughs> no. You know no, what? I don't much. feel bad. He's a murderer. So fuck. Yeah. Him. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, uh, Jason, where can they find you on social media? Well, the best place to find me, Brennan, is if you head to Twitter, uh, I'm at Jason D McLeod. Uh, you can come by and you can check me or you can check out my parlor account at mega 2024 oh, forever. Oh. 
<laughs> and I'll be happy to inform you of some of my uh, uh, deeper opinions. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Parlor where the free speech lives, baby. That's right. It's where the frogs are to be in turn gay. Check it out. <laughs> By the way, don't sign up for Parlor for many reasons. Uh, not least <laughs> of all that apparently you, you will get hacked. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, I guess, yeah. Maybe they have bad security. I don't know. Uh, well, I'll just tell you this. I, I signed up for a fake account just to, just to take a look at the app and sure. I can, I can, um, I can confirm that they have poor security. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank yeah. you for your service. <laughs> no problem. Anything I could do for the Commonwealth. Uh, so yeah, they can find you there and, uh, you know, you talk about all your heists, you make plans right on Twitter. I've always warned you about that. Well, I figure I'm. I, if I just put it out in the open, nobody will notice. It's hiding in plain sight, Brendan. It's classic tactic. If it's on Twitter, it's it's not illegal. That's right. It, it, Twitter is a fantasy, so uh, nothing on there ever actually happens. It's weird. I thought Twitter was just real life. No, no, okay. it's uh, it's it's the dreams of Donald Trump. Oh, okay. So it's not caught in a landslide. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's on top of the world. I would say. Oh, okay, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Everything cool. is going to be all right, Brendan. Cool, cool, 2024 cool, cool. he's coming back baby oh, God. <laughs> pray that away um yeah you could donate to the trump campaign at <laughs> donate.com oh god uh if anybody if a single person makes a donation because they heard that on this podcast jason i hold you to blame for everything okay well and if you do then go ahead and put our name in the uh donation line and uh, no no <laughs> No, uh, we want them to get in trouble because we're a Canadian podcast. So if it looks like there's money coming from us, they'll get in big shit. Oh, perfect. Say you're from, say you're from like, uh, I don't know, fucking, if you, I was going to say Hawaii, but that's part of America. But if you yeah. say you're from Hawaii, the people that handle that website will probably think you're foreign. That's true. That's very true. Anyway, uh, you can also find, you can find our podcast on Age of Radio, of course, uh, ageofradio.org slash uh, for screen and country, or just go um, on ageofradio.org and look for us there. Check out our benevolent masters. Yes. Um, you can also, uh, we're also on the Twitter at BFI underscore pod. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for for screen and country. And we're all, all, all the other podcast apps. Just look for us. We're out there. We're we're out there, man. We're ready to mingle. You just need to find us. If you haven't found us, how are you hearing us? I mean, I don't know. Are we on YouTube? I don't think we're on YouTube. We're not. Maybe maybe an intrepid fan would upload us to YouTube, and then it'd be like a cool like fan archive of our uh, of our uh, episodes. But maybe I'm overestimating our fan base. Well, if uh, if they <laughs> if they do that, I'm gonna have to start uh, sending out some copyright notices. Get some season and desist, baby. Then we're big time. <laughs> <laughs> big time. So that with all that being said, next week, loneliness is a long distance runner. Jason, I just have to say to you, uh, God save the queen. God save the screen. For screening country, I'm Brendan. And I'm Jason. Hey, meatballs. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best you got. Oh, hey, meatballs. You want to eat a meatball sandwich with my meatballs? This is the self-preservation society. This is the self-preservation society. Go wash your German vegetable rice, too. Come your bonnet fair, we got a lot to do. Put on your dinky dirt and your pick and ride. Time to hurry and buy Get your skates on, mate Get your skates on, mate 
No people around your Gregory Peck to die. I from your place of meat, right upon the sink. This is the self-preservation society. This is the self-preservation society. Gotta get a moving. Move on. Let's check our cue, baby. Pair it with a couple brews, baby. We love good movies. We love the bad ones, too. So we watch them all and pass their lessons on to you. Oh, yeah. Everything I learned from movies helps to make life a little bit With a one last plot holes a gratuitous boobies. It's time to get busy with your friend Steven Izzy. At eilfm.podbean.com.